Hey listeners, Miles here. As you know, we're still working on our setups for long distance recording, and we wanted to warn you ahead of time that this episode has a few more hiccups than usual. So thanks for bearing with us while we work out the kinks. So Miles, what you been up to this week? I've been cramming early 90s continuity. So many new characters, so many teams. Oof, no kidding. You holding up okay? Do you, like, need an adult or a drink? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I'm just taking it one step at a time, I guess. Right now I'm trying to figure out who that dude with no face is. You mean the Inferno baby? His name is Face. That's a counterintuitive name for a guy with no face. Right? But no, I'm talking about the MLF one. All in white, big circle where his face should be. Oh, okay, that's Zero. Wait, I thought Zero was Maverick. Oh no no, Maverick is Agent Zero. This Zero is technically Adam Zero. He's from the future. Of course he is. And his name's Adam. No, his acronym is Adam. Ambient Energy Dampening Actualization Module, and Zero is his unit designation. Clan Ascani intended the Atoms to act as peacekeepers, but the project never really worked out, and at some point Zero got damaged, then found and repaired by the Jan Brady of the Summers family. Strife! Got it in one. So Strife brought Zero back to the 20th century and basically used him as a really fancy teleporter for the MLF's various heists until Zero disappeared after a really big nasty fight on the moon. Easy come, easy go, I guess. Well, I mean, kinda. Anyway, somewhere along the way, Zero got picked up by Mr. Tolliver. The one who was Tyler Dayspring in disguise. Yeah, that guy. So anyway, Zero learned to talk and slowly started to develop sentience. On his own? No, it actually turned out that Strife had programmed him to become self-aware. As a secret weapon? As a really cruel practical joke. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 159 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to our second episode after our hiatus. We're continuing to uh, tweak and perfect our various across-the-country techniques. And likewise, once again, I think we mentioned this in passing on our last episode, but we have a new producer now, Kurt. And I, I feel like we kind of glossed this last episode because the transition for us happened months ago, or over, over the last few months. Um, so it, it wasn't as immediate as when we shifted from Bobby to Kyle a few years back. Um, so by the time we came back, we were just like, oh yes, Kurt's our producer now. Um, but yeah, so fond, fond farewells to Kyle, who is awesome and who is still answering our panicked last minute tech related calls, by which I mean Miles's. And I'm totally glaring at you from across the country, by the way, dude. That's entirely reasonable. I had everything working except for, as it turned out, us being able to hear each other. Slight problem, but thankfully it's now remedied. Thanks, you know, Kyle. Minor issues. <laughs> but seriously, Kyle Yao defined the sound of this show and everything, uh, really everything about it that wasn't us for a couple years. So, Kyle, you're awesome. And listeners, Kyle still does Kaiju Cast, the giant monster podcast, and it is freaking awesome, especially if you like giant monsters. So, you know, check it out. Yeah, check it out. And when he is at conventions, which he is often, you should go and high five him and tell him that he is a super cool dude because he is and we love him forever. And we now, love Kurt, too, and Bobby. We love all of our producers equally, much like we love all of our listeners equally. <laughs> and speaking of our new producer, so our new one is Kurt Lloyd. He is awesome, he lives in Oregon, and he has a YouTube podcast called Comic Book Cover Story that I was on once, and it's a lot of fun. Check that out too. 
But you've left off the most important detail about Kurt and what's become sort of our de facto producer test, not even producer test so much as producer validation, which is that at some point in the process of getting new producers, we always end up casually asking them who their favorite X-Men is. And I'm happy to say that we are three for three for Nightcrawler. Right, and this time we have a producer who even shares the same first name as Nightcrawler, so I'm going to take that as a good sign. Do you think Kurt can teleport? I don't know, man. You're the one who lives within a reasonable radius. I'll ask him next time I see him. Anyway, we have a podcast. We have some X-Men to tell you about. Boy, do we. Right, can you tell that we're stalling here? Can you tell that we're, we're trying to avoid at all costs having to talk about the final three issues of New Mutants? Okay, so... Here's the thing, I think I've alluded to this on the show before, but New Mutants is my favorite X-book, it always has, I read it at exactly the right time, when I was a kid, when I was growing up, when I got that big box of comics from my dad, and then something happened. So, so Miles, do we get a direct account of how it feels to have your dreams trampled under tiny, delicate, dainty feet? <laughs> I mean, kind of. So, okay, in retrospect, going through these comics, they are a lot of fun. They're are major problems, but they're still fun. But when I was a kid, all I saw was a book that, you know, I thought survived relatively seamlessly from Claremont to Simonson, all of a sudden turned into something that was entirely unrelated. There were guns, there were muscles, there were scowls, there was, like, murder with nobody even commenting on it, and then the series was over, and it was X-Force, and I was really, really not a fan. So I'm gonna do my best to be my usual positive, cheerful self in this episode, but there is a bitter, bitter... 10 or so year old who's just lurking beneath the surface, shaking his fists at how it's not about feelings and romance anymore, now it's just about guns. And back in the day, I liked feelings and romance a lot more than guns. You know, that's actually still true. Hey Miles, do you have any pictures of yourself at 10 that we can put in the visual companion? Because I can picture you at 10, so I can get the hilarious image of tiny 10 year old Miles and his smoldering rage, which is really cute. But I, that's <laughs> something I'd like to share with our listeners because it's kind of making my day. I mean, I'll see what I can dig up. If nothing else, I'm pretty sure my mom has some. I will accept the one of you at five in a Skeletor costume as a substitute if it comes down to it. Fair enough. That is one of my favorite pictures. I wonder if they'd let me put that on my driver's license. Uh, they usually feel like they need to take the picture there, but you could maybe wear a Skeletor costume? I could. I could. Or I could just rip all the flesh off my face and have a skull. That might have problems, though. You already have a skull. You, I mean, don't, you don't grow I mean, one just when you pull the skin off. That's not how it works. That's not how skeletons work, dude. We should tell that to Rob Liefeld, because he's clearly confused. So speaking of, let's talk about some New Mutants, but first let's give some context. So we checked in briefly with the New Mutants last episode. They are all hanging out, living, and fighting over the bathroom in the basement of the mostly destroyed Xavier School. The team is largely gone. I think the only two original New Mutants who are still around at this point are Cannonball and Sunspot. Right, so it's the two of them. It's their gruff cyborg mercenary leader, Cable. It's Boom Boom, and it's Richter, and that is the entire team, because they've lost a few most recently in the Extinction Agenda. Right, uh, they lost Warlock. Warlock just, Warlock is dead. Warlock was killed. And Rain, after being turned into a mutate and partially sort of semi-cured, decided she was going to stay on Genosha and help with the cleanup and, and rebuilding efforts. So now we are left with just a shadow of the new mutants and a new creative team, because Louise Simonson... The wonderful, wonderful writer that damn near defines the latter half of New Mutants and basically all of X-Factor so far, she's not writing the book anymore. Suddenly, Rob Liefeld, the previous artist, is plotting the book, and Fabian Nicieza, a new guy, is scripting. And we should probably disambiguate between those two terms. So plotting is coming up with the story. Scripting refers just to the dialogue. What this means is that, is that Liefeld was drawing pages 
giving them to Nicieza. Nicieza was writing in the dialogue, but all of the plot, all of the panel-to-panel progression, all of the story that was coming, at least nominally, at least in terms of the credits from Liefeld. So I remember this, I remember this a little differently than you. I was, I was in college, so I had a, a different sort of smoldering rage response. And I gotta say, I was kind of pleasantly surprised going back to it. I mean, it's got all the problems that were there the first time, but man, Nicias is actually really solid. Like his dialogue captures the voices of the characters very, very well, much better than I expected and much better than I really remembered from reading it for the first time because that was so overshadowed by the art. I completely agree. Yeah, I was very pleasantly surprised in retrospect by how well Nicieza gets the characters. And they're not all the same. Like, the cable written here, and this may just be from Liefeld's plotting, is a much darker, much less compassionate, less fatherly figure. He's just kind of a big jerk, but he's a big jerk who's right because, well, the plot is written by Liefeld and he clearly wants cable to be right. You know, I'm going to go with the gaming metaphor. Cable is the NPC that your, your storyteller, your, your GM brings in. Um, that's just better than you at everything ever forever. And he's the coolest and he's the most badass. And it becomes increasingly obvious that this is the PC that your DM actually wants to be playing. But, you know, no one else would agree to run the damn game. Basically exactly that. Yeah. So with all of that in mind, let's just dive into what happens. And oh, so many things happen in New Mutants number 98, the beginning of the end, part one of three. All right. So New Mutants 98, we should note, is the single most valuable issue of New Mutants if you are picking it up as a collector. It is incredibly rare, it is incredibly expensive, and that is because it is the first appearance of a character who later went on to become extremely prominent in Marvel's line, and I'm talking about the external Gideon. Oh man, Gideon. I never thought he would become almost the central character of the Marvel Universe, especially with that movie he just had recently. Like, those metal-banded arms, that mullet-top-knot combo. Every child in America knows Gideon the External. So it's also the first appearance of Domino and some guy who kind of looks like Spider-Man, but we'll get to them a little bit later. Yeah, so this is the only issue of New Mutants I could not afford a first printing of. I had to get a reprint because the first printing is just so stupidly expensive. You know, I'm kind of okay with that. Not that much happens here. What what does happen, and what, what we begin with, is is the aforementioned Gideon. Um, and Gideon is a creatively attired gentleman with a luxuriant platinum grape half-top knot, and not one but two metal arms. And we see him, our first, our first introduction to him, he is fighting a bunch of robots in his very own quasi-danger room, attended by a manservant named Adam. So I'm pretty sure this is just what business looked like in the early 90s, right? Like all the successful businessmen and businesswomen dressed pretty much like this. They all had the skullet top knot combo. And the lovingly rendered buttocks of a Liefeld drawing. Oh, man. I, you know, we give Liefeld a lot of crap. We also talk about the things he does well, and he just draws the most beautiful butts. They don't look like my butt or necessarily the butt of anybody I know, but they're very attractive. No, they're just like, it's, I don't know if they're well drawn, but they're just, they're so carefully and lovingly rendered. I can't help but respect those butts. Well, anyway, Gideon is being a badass, and we find out during this that he got these robot pals from Sebastian Shaw, another successful ex-businessman. That is, the letter X, not EX. He's still a businessman. Well, and we also find out that Gideon doesn't think much of Sebastian Shaw. In fact, he thinks little enough of him to think that he basically got screwed over in the business deal because these robots are too noisy, I guess. That is a deal breaker with killer robots, and that's why you should buy yours from Arcade, maybe? I don't know. I feel like any any killer robots you can get from Arcade would have, like, really creepy modes that you could accidentally trigger, though. <laughs> That's probably true. Well, we don't have to deal with these loud robots for long because Gideon uses his own mutant powers to totally kick the crap out of them. And his powers are 
both intense and somewhat confusing. Well, Adam, fortunately, is talking to Gideon about what Gideon is doing, and so we learn via Adam that Gideon's powers are, and I quote, superhuman enhancement assimilation. So basically like the old X-Men villain Mimic. Kinda, except that, as I recall, Mimic could only mimic specific powers or specific types of powers, and this dude appears to have assimilated all of the powers from the robots, which raises the question of what counts as a superhuman enhancement for purposes of Gideon's powers. I mean, if he's near a bulldozer, can he suddenly move vast quantities of Earth? Oh, right. Or, I mean, does it even work with concepts? If he's near a great source of ennui, like, say, an open mic goth knight, can he channel ennui into a pure beam of necrotic energy? That seems unlikely. But it would be pretty rad. I just want to see somebody channel open mic nights into some sort of destruction. Speaking of destruction, having properly trounced his robot opponents, Gideon heads off to arrange the murder of one Emmanuel DaCosta, and then possibly to have lunch with someone named um, Mrs. Chaffee, who... I, my, my entire context for that name is NASA, and so I assume at this point, just because Gideon is obviously a ne'er-do-well, that he is now out romancing Apollo 1 Widows. So he's romancing Apollo 1 Widows, he's going to murder Emmanuel DaCosta, the father of Sunspot, and blame Gilder for it. Yes. <laughs> so this is unfortunate. I mean, as a reminder, Emmanuel DaCosta, he's not a good dude, Sunspot. No, no, dad. he's a huge jerk. He is, he is, in fact, a very bad dude, but not a bad enough dude to rescue the president. But he is Sunspot's dad, and I don't want Sunspot to be sad. He's already had a really hard life. He's had a lot of angst about whether he's going to turn evil as well. He watched a bunch of his friends die. It's unfortunate. He doesn't need another bad thing to happen. I appreciate the sentiment, buddy, but you're about 25 years too late on this one. Ugh, so true. Well, in that case, I guess we'd better go to the danger room. All right, this is the real danger room, by the way. This isn't Gideon's stupid quasi-danger room. Um, And here... Cable is training, and he's, he's also fighting robots, as one does, but Cannonball takes the opportunity to crash Cable's workout somewhat literally. Right, he manages to sneak up on Cable. He is not only nigh invulnerable when he's blasting, he's also apparently silent, which is really hard to imagine. Like, I picture him going really slowly while he's silent, but that doesn't make any sense. No, I like that. That's actually pretty much what I was imagining, too. Apparently, though, he's only silent when he's focusing real hard. So Cable uses this to, you know, turn the tables and then to set some new training goals for Sam. He's got to work on keeping his blast field quiet in combat. Of note, we had a listener question about this many, many, many episodes ago, and I totally got the answer wrong. I said Sam couldn't keep it quiet, and in fact, here he can. Now, what about Emmanuel DaCosta? What about the presumably soon-to-be-murdered dad of Sunspot? What's he doing while the Danger Room stuff is going on? I mean, he's just fucked. He is so very much about to be murdered. He is over at his office, um, where he is being attended to by a sexy assistant who, I, who might be an android. I can't tell if Adam and Eve are androids or if they're just supposed to be regular people or what. But Eve, who we know at this point is working for Gideon because he name-dropped her earlier, gives Emmanuel coffee and then proceeds to mug and smile evilly at the reader. So it's not particularly surprising when Emmanuel then spends the following page dying really dramatically. I gotta say, if you're gonna do something, you should do it right. Don't ever half-ass it. If I ever die, now I don't plan on it, but if I ever do, I want it to be super dramatic and probably involve some kind of explosion. And just egregious waste of space in a comic book? Exactly. If you can't waste space in a comic book, what's the point of anything? This is one of those sequences that bugs me as, as an editor, because there's nothing that this accomplishes in two pages that it couldn't have done in one. Yeah, I totally agree there. Meanwhile, back in the basement of the ruins of the Xavier Mansion... 
Richter and Boom Boom are arguing. Richter wants to go, quote unquote, rescue Rain from Genosha, despite the fact that as far as they know, she's there entirely voluntarily at this point. So here's the thing about this, I totally buy it. I mean, Richter is probably one of the less defined New Mutants characters just because he's been in fewer issues, or at least he's been the focus in fewer issues. But one of the central traits that our buddy Julio Estevan Richter has is that his judgment is terrible and he uses his heart a lot more than his brain. And as someone who shares both of those qualities, I kind of got to love him for it. Yeah, no, Richter is basically a bad decision machine. It's it's almost a secondary mutation at this point. And <laughs> with him is... And I can't believe I'm, I'm actually about to say these words. With him is the significantly more prudent Tabitha Smith, Boom Boom. Right, when does Boom Boom have good ideas? Well, when it comes to staying back from danger and not running off half-cocked, Boom Boom is actually, on the whole, one of the more cautious members of this team. Well, Richter does indeed run off half-cocked or otherwise, leaving Boom Boom to say, Why am I talking to in, like, really tiny text. I like it when they use tiny text. It's a good visual uh, representation of types of dialogue. But, you know, I gotta say, with this dialogue, with the other dialogue, Fabian Cieza, he's kind of got it. Yeah, no, he's. this is the scene where, in my notes, I keep on remarking he's really got the voices down. And his boom boom is a bit exaggerated, but his Richter is really, really on point. And I think, in general, as, as a writer coming in and taking over the book from a very, very established voice... He's doing a really good job matching the tone, um, and he's doing the best job, I think, that could be done under the circumstances, bridging, I was going to say these two eras of the comic, but really, he's only going to be on it for three issues until it becomes X-Force, so I'm not sure where you go with that. Well, in a way, these three issues are kind of the minus three, two, and one issues of X-Force. They're clearly leading up to it, and as such, we see a whole lot of Cable. He is done with his Danger Room workout. He is, and Cable, when he is done with Danger Room, heads to the library where he's interrupted in his hunt for the latest VC Andrews by some Spider-Man-looking asshole who is there to kill him. Okay. And this, this dude is, is uh, not Spidey. Not Spidey, we learn, has been sent by someone named Mr. Tolliver to kill Cable. Okay, so we should probably at least talk about who he actually is. I mean, I don't want to say his name either, but... You mean Mr. Tolliver? Well, we know that he's Cable's estranged adopted son from the future. His name is Tyler. He's adopted. He's he's the son of Cable's future wife, who's also dead. Um, none of that was planned out at this point. He was just a sort of ambiguous, faceless villain to whom both Cable and the MLF had some sort of connection. He's, he's sent this assassin, who we'll learn later is one of several after Cable. I mean, that... Assassin. He's he's kind of a big deal. I hate to say it. I don't know, man. I like. I don't think he ever came back after this issue. <laughs> no, no. Really, Gideon was the only character to. Okay. We're no, no. Say Domino, it. Domino's back at least once or twice. But this guy. I mean, I don't even know what the hell kind of name Deadpool is. Like that's that's not the that's not a character who's gonna have staying power after this. So we knew we would get to this day someday. Ever since we said fuck Deadpool in our very first episode, we knew we'd eventually have to talk about him. Man, that like the proportion of throwawayness of that off-the-cuff dumb joke and the extent to which it has continued to haunt us to this day. People seriously <laughs> yell at us about that. They really like Deadpool. Well, no, and people think that we hate Deadpool and we, we have a personal vendetta against him, and we really don't. It's just that we so, see no reason to cover him as a solo character when he's not intersecting directly with an X-book, which here he is. So obviously we are, we are covering. This is the first appearance of Deadpool, by the way. And he's got the foundations of what's going to become his signature voice. He's definitely got his own fancy specialized word balloons with red borders. Um, and he's got what very much feels like 
Monsieur is a very sort of forcibly and self-consciously trying to write sassy banter. Yeah, it's very different than the Deadpool that we will come to know and some of us will come to love. That fourth wall breaking, witty, charismatic anti-hero that we see in like the Deadpool movie, that's not this guy. He's just sort of a generic assassin that looks a little bit like Spider-Man and is somewhat quippy, kind of like Spider-Man, but nothing beyond that. Yeah, no, he comes off as like shitty rip-off villain Spider-Man with swords. Yeah, so... He gets in a big fight with Cable for the aforementioned Mr. Tolliver, who, as you mentioned, at this point in continuity, nobody knows anything about. And uh, Cable acquits himself quite well, because he's Cable. But not well enough. Deadpool's got him on the ropes, and the new mutants rush in and try to save the day, but they too are no match for Deadpool or his fancy pants red-bordered word balloons, until Deadpool is taken down efficiently by a lady whose costume theme appears to be sexy Dalmatian, but not like in a Dean Pelton kind of Okay, so this is Domino's first appearance, and I have to say, of the three characters who first appear in this issue, Deadpool, Gideon, and Domino, Domino is by far my favorite. I love her so much. Oh my god, Domino is delightful. Domino is just cookie-cutter badass in ways that I enjoy deeply. Have you seen Glow yet? I haven't seen Glow, but my partner Anna was also just telling me I need to. Yeah, you need to see Glow, um, but you will have a whole new level of appreciation for just the cookie-cutter badassitude of, of this dialogue. In fact, I think we should read through Domino's first appearance, because it's so good. It just, yeah, starts with Sunspot um, calling out, Dios mio, what happened? To which Domino responds, I happened. Hello, Cable. You called? I came. Just in time, as usual. How have you been, Domino? I've been around. And back again, it seems. How's this new babysitting business of yours going? Could be better. Could be worse. Okay, so, Miles, we live across the country now. We're gonna be in the same place a couple times a year. Whenever we see each other for the first time after a while, we gotta greet each other like this. This is so cool. Oh man, does that mean I get to do my cable voice? I, I assume so, yeah. I feel great about this. Although I don't know, you can be Domino sometimes. We should switch off because I want to. I want to do. I want to do the growly thing too. Try the growly thing, Jay. I'm bad at the growly thing right now. Give me, give me a while. I, yeah, no, it's too late at night for me to effectively growly thing, and I haven't, I haven't had quite enough scotch tonight for this. I should say, by the way, that I am drinking scotch as we record this episode. I'm pacing myself, but um, I feel that it's fundamentally unfair to expect anyone to discuss strife completely sober. Oh man, I should have brought up some booze myself. Well, there's always the Executioner song. So, <laughs> oh god. This scene showcases why I love Domino in a number of ways. First of all, she has a very strong design. Like, we're not usually fans of Liefeld's art, but I think he really nails the design here. It's simple, it's iconic, it works. She has a black spot over one eye, over her very pale skin, a sort of mercenary-looking outfit. It works. No, if she were a Domino and if that were the theme she were going with, she should be dressed in white. Well, regardless, I like it. I also like the version of Domino that's going to be in the new Deadpool movie that we've seen. Super badass. I like the version in the Deadpool movie better, actually. The half black, half white on the pants, too, is, is not really doing it for me. And the, the brown pouches just clash. <laughs> well, there is that. But what I also like about Domino is that she works with Fabian Nicieza's version of Cable. She's the sort of, like, sassy, doesn't-give-a-shit counterpart to his gruff, over-serious self. That's the same reason that Cable works with Deadpool sometimes, but I like Domino better than Deadpool, so I like this better. We should note, by the way, that this isn't actually Domino. That's not gonna come out on the page for, I think, a few years at this point, but this is, in fact, Copycat, who is in the employ of Mr. Tolliver, you know, Tyler Dayspring, etc., and she is pretending to be Domino as a way of infiltrating Cable's organization. 
Well, it works, as does kicking Deadpool's ass, so they literally mail Deadpool back to Mr. Tolliver. Heavily implying that he will be killed when he returns with his mission incomplete. And as we all know, that's the last we ever saw of Deadpool. So Cable and Domino realize after this fight is done, their team is running real low on members. I mean, Richter seems to have disappeared. They just have a few. Who are they going to recruit? Well, they look through a lot of optional members, you know, Rusty, Skids, Magma, Karma, and, um, you know, discount each of them pretty fucking rudely. They do, although I do enjoy uh, Domino's uh, surprise at some of the context of these characters. Last up is Danielle Moonstar, Mirage. She became a Valkyrie and stayed in Asgard. Excuse me? I really love how Domino speaks for any readers who might be coming in having not followed the series from the start. But that's not quite the end of the issue, because later that night, Richter decides that he's he's gonna do it. He's gonna cut free, he's gonna go to Genosha. He leaves a note telling Boom Boom that he has gone to, and I quote, save rain and live happily ever after. Oh, poor Richter. What sucks even more is that we're never gonna see how that adventure goes, and the next time he shows up, we'll be in a totally different context with no mention of it. I know. I know. But he's going to get a really good love interest later, and that love interest isn't going to be introduced till next issue, and he's not going to be introduced till, to Richter till much, much later. But back at the mansion, there's a lot of sneaking around. As Richter is sneaking out, Gideon is sneaking in. And specifically, Gideon is sneaking into Sunspot's room so that he can wake Sunspot up with the news that his father is dead while crouched at the foot of his bed or some other ridiculous shit like that. I mean, what is this, Twilight or Cool as Ice? Gideon, what even is wrong with you? It's unfortunate. I mean, I'm not saying there's any good way to tell somebody that their parents are dead or that their father is dead, but Gideon, I'm pretty sure that's not it. Seriously, who even does something like that? Well, Gideon does, and that leads us quite nicely into New Mutants number 99 with a cover that kind of tells us where that scene is leading. Right, this cover is an homage to X-Men 138. That's the first issue after the Dark Phoenix Saga, and it's the one with the title Exit Cyclops, is Cyclops wandering away from the X-Men. This time, however, we have Sunspot tiptoeing away from the New Mutants on his weird little Lifeldian feet. That's right, the New Mutants deconstruction continues. We lost Richter last time, apparently Sunspot this time. Well, was One Richter thing... ever a proper new mutant? Oh, he absolutely was. Him and Boom Boom totally joined the team for, you know, a while, and Boom Boom will be on it and then X-Force for even longer. Okay, I can probably accept that. Now, this issue has a feature that the last issue was missing. This issue has time and date stamps. Now, that implies when I see it in a comic that the order of events is important, or that time or the passage of time or the overlap of time is a clue to some key plot point. None of those things are the case in this issue, and in fact, I'm pretty sure there are some fairly major errors in the date recording. Well, let's go for it anyway. Right, I'm going to include them anyway so that we can go with this, this precise timeline that then completely goes off the rails. So, we start on December 13th at 7.34pm. A feline mutant named Farrell is fleeing from Mask and his cronies in the sewers of New York. Let's talk about Farrell. So Farrell's going to be a longtime member of X-Force very shortly. Her name is Maria Kaya Santos, and she is a Morlock who happens to look like a cat girl. She also has a sister who goes by Thorn with two N's because it's the 90s. She's going to change sides a whole bunch of times before eventually being killed by Sabretooth. That's unfortunate. She does, however, cameo in the amazing, amazing, amazing Catwolf storyline. <laughs> I have nothing bad to say about that. You shouldn't well, because it's beautiful. 
Well, anyway, Feral manages to subdue her would-be attackers who are chasing her, that is, some of Mask's Morlocks, with a signature Liefeld kick. A Liefeld kick, as you may recall, is when somebody suddenly does splits in the air in at least one direction from an apparently still position. It's amazing, and usually their legs double, if not triple, in length. Well, at 10.24 p.m., having escaped her pursuers over the last few hours, Farrell makes her way to an access hatch that presumably leads to the Xavier Mansion, or at least what's left of it. What she doesn't know is that Mask and company are totally onto her, and looking forward to a rematch with whoever is still at the school. The next day, December 14th, at 12.43 p.m., Cable and James Proudstar meet for a cup of coffee at the Tavern on the Green in Central Park, or at least what passes for it in this comic. Right, as I understand, the actual Tavern on the Green has more than one table in the middle of the woods, and isn't really in the middle of the woods at all. Yeah, no, it is a real place. It's in Central Park. It's very pretty. It's got a very pretty outdoor patio that is paved and has a lot of tables at it. This Tavern on the Green appears to be a single cafe-style table in the middle of a wooded clearing, served by a single waiter who sort of hovers to the outskirts. And the waiter, I'm assuming he's normal-sized, but look at James Proudstar and look at Cable. That waiter could easily fit inside either of them. I'm not saying he should, but, you know, he could. I mean, that's pretty much accurate to both characters, though. They're both just inhumanly enormous. So, Cable we know. Now, James Proudstar, we haven't seen him in a very long time. What's his deal, Jay? James is the younger brother of John Proudstar, the first Thunderbird, um, and John also has the notable distinction of being the first X-Men to die, which he did in a fight with the really dumbass Count Nefaria. Way back at the beginning of the all-new, all-different X-Men era. Now, James himself, we've mostly seen him as a member of the Hellions, as a member of the equal and opposite team of young mutants run by Emma Frost at her school, the rivals of the New Mutants. As a rule, James is kind of the sympathetic one of the Hellions, but he's since left the school, he's returned to his hometown, and he's living there fairly happily now and is entirely uninterested in joining into what Cable describes as a war for which he's preparing mutants. Cable keeps going about how he's, you know, he knows what's coming and it's bad, and, and James continues to be skeptical, at which point Cable pulls out a somewhat nonsensical trump card that's going to continue to reverberate through this issue. There are five kinds of mutants. The mollifiers, the abusers, the used, the hunted, the hidden. I am trying to create a sixth kind, the survivors. I am trying to prepare you all for a very bleak future. What? Okay, so I kind of see what they're going for. Cable is totally the kind of guy who would divide all of mutant kind into these categories whom he would judge on various levels by various merits. Okay, first of all, those categories don't make sense as discrete categories. Many of those would have significant overlap. For example, the hunted and the hidden... I would assume would be almost completely the same category. You know, the abusers, the used, and the mollifiers seem like they'd also all overlap significantly. And also, this is just silly, and what, are they fucking Pokemon or something? You know, the mollifiers, the hunted, the hidden, grass-type, and fire-type? Oh yeah, like the mollifiers are strong against the hunted, the hunted are strong against the hidden, and you want to have a balanced uh, group in your X-balls. X-balls? You want to have a balanced group in your X-Ball so that you can face a variety of opponents. Here's the thing. If you're running all five kinds of mutants, you're going to end up mana screwed really fast. Like, you probably just want to select one, maybe two. I could see running a three mutant deck if maybe you had some more versatile lands, but this is just iffy. Well, regardless, 
this is pretty weird. I mean, dividing mutants into these different categories, like, I wish we got to hear more about it. I'm curious about Cable's logic, but we never really get that logic, except that the survivors are presumably what X-Force will end up looking like. This is the future of mutants. This is what they mean when they're talking about passing along Xavier's dream, because, see, at the start, there were also five types of mutants, but they were ice wings, lasers, gymnastics, and girl. <laughs> Jean was indeed a girl-type mutant back in the 60s. God damn it, Silver Age. I specifically goddammit, Stanley. That is soundly his legacy, and this is so bad. Like, all I can think is that he's doing some kind of, he's got some kind of weird selective breeding program. This is fucked up and creepy either way, right? Like, this is really weird. I think it is, but I think it's also supposed to seem fucked up and creepy. I mean, Cable is a badass character, but he's not a nice character, and under Nicieza, that's doubly true. Under Simonson, he sort of had this grumpy dad thing going on. Now he's just an asshole who may be the only one who can save the world. So... It's really difficult reading Cable and reading Cable in these issues not to compare him to Rachel in her early appearances. To Rachel Summers? To Rachel yeah, Summers, you know, that's yeah. a good point. This is this is another time-displaced, you know, Summers kid, um, in her case from an alternate timeline. But yeah, if you see this Cable as, as one who is profoundly damaged by and obsessed with preventing his potential future and just trying really hard to rationalize it in, in ways that'll make sense to people in this present... He reads a lot more naturally. And speaking of the future, Warpath says to Cable, You have a crystal ball that the rest of us don't. You don't need one to predict the obvious. Meanwhile, back at a mysterious location that may or may not be the Xavier School, I don't think it's supposed to be, but the dialogue implies that it might be, which raises some questions. Gideon is in fact watching Cable and James's conversation play out on a fancy monitor bank. And he and his butler-slash-assistant-slash-major-domo, but not that major-domo, Adam, uh, they're watching the Playboy channel. No, they're not watching the Playboy channel. They have a, an awkward conversation about whether Gideon is watching the Playboy channel, which he's not. Was that supposed to make him seem badass, like, to the readers of this comic? Here's the thing. Gideon looks like he's about, what, maybe 40 or something? I have a lot of trouble associating Gideon with any age or characteristics of actual human people, because really he looks like a drawing of a cool dude. Yeah, or at least a cool dude as 1991 would have him. But he stops spying on Cable and James Proudstar in favor of pacing around and talking at Sunspot, who's there. Whoa, 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 wait. Before we move on to that conversation, I would like to take a moment to point out that Gideon has his own secret spy network, and it is named, I kid not, I Spy. Oh, I always read it as ISPY. I Spy makes m way more sense. I mean, he might pronounce it ISPY. This is, this is what he, um, he explains to Adam when Adam basically says, so are you watching the Playboy channel in there? Well, regardless, Gideon in his ambiguous age is talking to his schoolmate buddy, maybe? Godson, maybe? Who knows? Sunspot, who's there? Yeah, I cannot tell what their relationship is supposed to be. Adam, meanwhile, is standing in the background looking smug. And, um, yeah, he, Gideon's implying that they grew up together. The way they're referring to the school kind of implies that this is taking place there, which would mean that Gideon's secret monitor bank is actually somehow in the basement of the Xavier school. There's a lot that's a little bit off. But the news that Gideon is here to convey is that Roberto has inherited his father's entire business, and he is now CEO. And we can tell this is important because through this entire proclamation, Gideon's hair swirls dramatically at all times, and Gideon poses ridiculously every time he says anything. So let's look past the ridiculous posing, and indeed all of Gideon's character, and think about how this has to be for Sunspot. I mean, okay, 
you've always had a horrible relationship with your father. You've been to a dark future where you literally turn into his successor, an evil businessman. And now this ridiculous human being is leaping around, swooping his hair to tell you that you've inherited his company. It's like the Monty Python confuse a cat sketch. Maybe he's doing this to, to you know, take the edge off Roberto's inevitable grief. Maybe. But Roberto is indeed troubled and in lots of shadows, and I feel so bad for Roberto da Costa. I mean, we know from the cover that he's leaving, we know he's getting all this, like, horrible, confusing news from a horrible, confusing man. This is a bad day for our buddy. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Well, at 3.13pm, presumably still on December 14th, back at the definite X-Mansion... The New Mutants and Cable sit down to read Richter's note. And Cable, having read it, decides that Richter is now Richter's problem, which actually kind of makes sense to me. Like, that that seems like a pretty reasonable choice. Richter has chosen to terminate his relationship with this team, Sam. This ends any obligations we have to him. It's not understood, son. Call me son one more time! They really are very Washington and Hamilton, aren't they? Oh, you got a Hamilton reference. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Brownie points. You did so, good, my friend. You did good. Um, no one in this scene moves in okay ways. I mentioned Gideon being all over the place in the last one, and this one, people just, they don't walk, they don't stand, they just leap. They're leaping around everywhere in strange positions, and I don't understand it, and it's very distracting. I gotta say, if I was agile and strong enough, I would totally leap everywhere, so I don't blame them in the least. Yeah, no, it reminds me of when you're playing a video game and it's faster to jump, so you just jump everywhere. Right, or where you just assume it's faster to jump, like in, say, World of Warcraft. Or where if you're an elf, you sometimes twirl in the air. But their toes are always very pointed and, and turned outward, and so the effect is, is very balletic. It's really strange. It's, it's novel. I'll, I'll stick some of this in the visual companion. And I can sort of see what must have been the thought process here. I, the, the decision, well, I'll make this page dynamic. I want people doing things. I want people moving. They'll be in the midst of getting up or whatever like that. But the actual result is it's just them sort of sort of jumping around like fleas all the time. Well, let's take it to 4.22 p.m. on December 7th, so I guess Whoa, wait a minute. I guess we've gone back in time? Yeah, so this is the error I mentioned earlier. I am guessing that this is supposed to be December 17th, because it clearly takes place after a lot of the stuff that's happened previously. In fact, it should be December 15th or 16th based on what's happened. But yeah, no, suddenly um, we are back to December 7th, and this is the timeline that we're back to. So we're going to be using the dates as written in the books, but if you want to mentally insert a 1 before those numbers, that might be a good idea. So again, uh, December 7th, 4.22 p.m. In Phoenix, Arizona, they do not specify in which time zone it is 4.22 p.m., whether it is 4.22 p.m. in Phoenix or at some kind of master clock in Eastern Standard Time, which is what the Xavier Mansion would be in. Well, Jay, you've really thought a lot about this whole timeline thing. So when I started at Dark Horse and Editorial, one of the first projects I worked on was the Hellboy Companion. And I was assisting on the timeline. It was mostly written by someone else, but I was double checking. And one of the things that I was doing was things like going through all of the comics and all of the short stories and, and, and novels and flagging every mention of time of day, time of year, any outdoor scene that had visual scenery that indicated the weather you know, all of that stuff. So I pay attention to these things. It's, yeah, it's good to be precise and all that. Well, fair enough. But what's happening here is that James Proudstar has come home from his meeting with Cable to Camp Verde, his family's home, to discover that it's burned to the ground and everybody's dead. Apparently, this has gone full Uncle Owen and Aunt Baru, and James falls to his knees, enraged and lost. 
The only evidence of who might have done this is a cracked white Hellfire Club mask conveniently placed on top of the rubble like a signature because really what villainous organization wouldn't? But what a hell of a scene, at least conceptually. I mean, visually, we don't see much in the way of backgrounds. We don't see much in the way of wreckage or dead people. We just understand what's going on from the dialogue. But think about this. I mean, it's not just that his father died like Sunspot. His entire town died. All of his family and all of his friends. Like, this book has gotten so dark. Yeah, this is a place where I feel like there should be more going on visually, so much more. You know, you mentioned dead bodies, and it's it's easy to be cynical about showing a lot of gore and a lot of carnage. But there's so much you can do with a scene like this, and there are so many ways you can dial up the impact, and none of them are here. Like, there are no backgrounds. Still, though, just from my knowledge of James Proudstar from New Mutants when he was a member of the Hellions, just from my, you know, desire to not see people die, the scene does hit hard despite the visuals not really working. And I do want to make sure that we emphasize that, because shit. Yeah, no, um, apparently we're, we're all really conditioned to respond to large beefy men dropping to their knees and yelling why at the sky while, while reaching upward in um, green Robin Hood gloves. <laughs> yeah, well... Well, at 8.47, I guess on this day, who knows, in the New Mutants bunker, Cable has changed into a snappy three-piece suit and tiny glasses. Sure, why not? And Sunspot shows up to talk to Cable and say that Emmanuel DaCosta, his father, is dead, and Sunspot is leaving the team. Cable manages an extended moment of genuine sympathy before reverting hard and fast back to his default state of not giving any fucks. And Roberto storms the hell out, which I can't really blame him for. Six minutes later, at 8.53pm in the Danger Room, Domino and Boom Boom sort of maybe awkwardly attempt to bond a little bit while doing fancy gymnastics. And they're totally doing the ballet feet thing here. Do you think that, like, Cable and Domino trained the new mutants in ballet actually? I mean, the X-Men did that, Stevie Hunter did that, it helped them be better fighters. Do you think it's something that the Ascani have ritualized? Ritualized war ballet! I love everything about this plan! It's like Capoeira. Yeah, no, I love this. No, well, with the pointed feet, it would be more like Savat. Oh yeah, I remember in the Street Fighter role-playing game, there was a French character and he used Savat, and it was it was really underpowered, as I recall. Unfortunate. Yeah, no, it's it's basically kicking, and you have to have special shoes for it. You have pointy kick shoes. I mean, it's fairly brutal, but it's not great for getting caught off guard without your fancy kick shoes. You should always carry your fancy kick shoes with you, Jay. It's gonna be rough in the shower. I'm wearing them right now, even while I'm recording. Now, Boom Boom thinks that Cable's behavior thus far is generally absolute bullshit, that he has just let Richter and Roberto go without even caring that he's he doesn't care what's going to happen to the new mutants and that he's basically going to get them all killed. And Domino explains that, no, Cable's just really into personal choice. Cable is going to show you the roads you can take. He'll even offer you an option to follow him on the road he's chosen. And this is a hell of a contrast with the last two headmasters of the new mutants who did not even remotely give the kids those options. In fact, they didn't really trust the kids. To be fair, the kids weren't very trustworthy. Although, man, the second half of that, who even offer you an option to follow him on the road he's chosen, there's nothing creepy or cultish about saying that to a teenager. Still, I think Nesieza does really sell his and Liefeld's version of Cable. Like, Cable is coming through loud and clear with the type of character he is, and I have to give them props for that. So we go back to the library, and we go back to 8.45 p.m., which is technically two minutes before Cable talked with Roberto, but Roberto has already said he's leaving at this point, so I don't even know what the hell's happening with the passage of time anymore. Uh, Cable is in the library, he's still fancy, and now he is with Sam, and they are having an impassioned argument. This is something that's, I think, been building up for the two of them for quite a while. 
We are fighting a war, pure and simple. You've been sheltered from reality too long to see it. Oh, I've been sheltered, have I? I've had to deal with the pain of seeing my friends die in combat, seeing them leave because they can't take it anymore. I've seen everyone and everything I care for falling apart around me. They were casualties, Sam. We're all potential casualties. I've seen hundreds die. Thousands. Don't talk to me about pain, son. My whole life has been about pain and loss. Yeah, kind of figured as much. Sort of hoped having people like us to care about, who also cared about you, would help ease some of that pain. Guess I was wrong, huh? So, The New Mutants was about a number of different dynamics. It was about Ilyana and Magneto. It was about Cannonball and Sunspot. It was about Mirage and Wolfsbane. I think the central dynamic of X-Force, at least for the time when the characters are both on the team, is between Cable and Cannonball. They both want the same thing, they both know the world's a dangerous place, but Cannonball is all heart, even when he has to be hard and merciless, and Cable doesn't appear to have that. I was gonna say, and Cable is all grit, and muscles, and pouches. But it really works for me. I mean, this is genuinely a new dynamic. We've never really seen Sam with a father figure. Xavier wasn't really, Magneto definitely wasn't, and we know that Sam lost his own father in his first appearance way back in the New Mutants graphic novel in the early 80s. Again, you know, I, I know I'm harping on the art a lot, but holy shit, this page. It's a little weird. This is, again, I'm going to stick this in the visual companion, and for those of you who are new to the show, we... we do a visual companion for every episode that involves some of the visuals that we're talking about and the stuff that, that doesn't entirely come across in audio format, um, which you can find over at explainthexmen.com. Yeah, this is just, it's, the layout is baffling. And the thing is, there are some panels that work really well here and some stuff that makes a lot of sense and then some that's just bizarre and baffling and scale is kind of out the window. And I genuinely can't tell how much is deliberate, which also really throws me. Well, it's time for Sunspot to follow up on his promise. Which he will do at December 8th at 9.10 a.m. And a car is waiting for Sunspot, Gideon's car, and he's bidding what little is left of the team farewell. And especially saying one last goodbye to his first best friend, Sam. Bobby, I... I... Sam, I know, but I have to go. I have to take care of my father's personal things. I'm gonna miss you. Magnum's in reruns, Guthrie. Life goes on. I'm gonna miss you too. Oh man, this scene is genuinely so sad. Sam and Bobby have been best buds ever since they got over, you know, Sam working for the Hellfire Club and the first appearance of the New Mutants. Like, they have been inseparable as close as Wolfsbane and Mirage, and they've been on the same team for even longer since Wolfsbane and Mirage are gone now. And this is it. If anything says this is the end of the New Mutants, it's Cannonball and Sunspot not being together anymore. You know, I was holding it together pretty well, and then it hit the Magnum P.I. thing, and it just... I know! Oh, God! That's such it's a good brutal. line. It's and such a good line. Magnum's in a reruns. Fabian Yaseza, if you're listening, well fucking done right here. Yes. And that is that. Richter's gone, Sunspot's gone, the only New Mutants left under Cable's tutelage are Cannonball and Boom Boom. That's it. Fortunately, New Blood is on the way. The same day at 2.48 p.m., Domino finds James Proudstar wandering around outside and brings him to Cable in the war room. And James is game to help Cable if Cable will help him get revenge on the Hellfire Club for what they did to his family, probably. Farrell, who is hiding in the Xavier Mansion's remarkably capacious air ducts, I guess the basement's remarkably capacious air ducts, uh, overhears the deal and figures she can do much the same. And... Domino, realizing how small the team is, asks Cable. 
Going to start from scratch, big boy? The only way to make this work is to build it from the ground up. The right way. My way. Again, we've got a moment that feels real voice of the author there. It does. And that would be a good place to end the issue, but there is in fact one more beat. An unconscious Shatterstar has appeared in the danger room. And that's where New Mutants number 100, the final issue of the series, the beginning of the end part three, picks up. With an unconscious red mulleted man sporting a single pauldron and a really unlikely sword. But right now, he is in this danger room fighting training bots. And yeah, this guy's look, you touched on it briefly, but I feel like we should describe this a little bit more, because god damn. He's got what are going to become the signature 90s facial buttresses. He's got a double-bladed sword. That's right, two parallel blades for cutting things into three parts. He's got pouches. He has so many pouches. So many pouches. He's got a single poofy shoulder pad. He's got an ass-length red mullet that is permed on top and a very familiar star with eight points on the chest of his white outfit. And Warpath, who hasn't even had time to get a dorky costume on, turns to Cable and asks, You don't know who he is? No. I take it that equipment he's destroying is expensive? Very. Would you like me to stop him? Have a party. Yeah, I, I like that Cable's entire vocabulary is, is just like, rough action hero one-liners. But it works so well. Like, these are this is an exchange that's supposed to be funny, and it genuinely is. No, that's the thing. When I say I like it, I'm not being sarcastic. It's an aspect of the character and their writing in this bit that I genuinely really enjoy. Now, speaking of dialogue, this new guy, who will soon learn is named Shatterstar, and will much later learn is named Gavidra7, which is a rad name, he keeps using some insults that are kind of familiar-sounding. Mojo Sniffer! Spiral Sucker! Hmm, those sound familiar. I wonder if they might offer a clue as to where he's from, as does the fact that he woke up in the danger room having teleported in. Well, and, and the star on his uniform. This guy's reminiscent of one of my very favorite characters, Longshot, except, you know, way more 90s. So 90s. Now, Domino confronts Shatterstar, as Shatterstar is wreaking havoc, with a wonderful line. Okay then, hard guy. Why don't you loosen your boxers and start talking? I mean... If Domino said that to me, that would be a very effective pickup line. I hope this doesn't awaken anything in me. <laughs> right? I mean, I don't think the innuendo was intentional, but goddamn. No, I'm just going to keep making Dean Pelton and Dalmatians jokes. That's... <laughs> Entirely it's, reasonable. It's community references all the way down in here. Well, Shatterstar continues fighting, despite being a hard guy who's supposed to loosen his boxers, and he zaps Cannonball out of the air with a humming vibro sword blast. That is one of his very confusing powers. It'll be written very inconsistently, but that's a thing he can do. Is that his power, or is that the sword's power? It's his power, but he has to channel it through his sword. Which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but I'm not too worried. It's the 90s. Now, ultimately, Cable is able to knock Shatterstar out, because Cable is a cool guy who is the best at everything. And when Shatterstar wakes up in the med lab, much calmer, he regrets having failed, but does tell the New Mutants of his mission. He was sent by the Cadre Alliance to the past to seek help from the legendary X-Men against the despot Mojo-5 and his assistant Spiral. Whoa, 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 whoa. Go back a sec. Cadre Alliance. Did he choose them over, like, team group or, or uh, gathering consortium? You know, it's like the big Rio Grande River. A little redundancy never hurt anybody. 
But I love this concept. He's like Longshot, but he's from the future where the legends of the X-Men have been passed down. Of course, he would leave the Mojoverse, this horrible, like, despotic entertainment-based dystopia, to go to the past to find the X-Men. And this is something we'll see again and again. Bishop kind of does the same thing in Not Too Long, and I never get sick of it. It's such a cool concept. Here, it's enmeshed with a bunch of kind of amazing time travel clone nonsense involving Longshot and Shatterstar being clones of one another. But we're not going to get to that for a really, really long time, and we're going to ignore it as much as humanly possible until then. Well, Shatterstar's super disappointed because clearly he looked for the X-Men and he failed in finding them. His timeline is doomed. Cable feels otherwise. Are they the X-Men? No, not quite. We're better. <sighs> Whatever, jerk. <laughs> Cable's such an ass, and I kind of love him for it. So, speaking of, Shatterstar and Cable bond over both being jerks because they've only ever known war. Which, if you need a uh, lifetime pass to be a total dick to everyone around you, apparently that's a good excuse. No. Well, Boom Boom's having none of it. Yeah, well, you beef junkies keep talking the talk. I'm gonna go scarf up some chow for the bohunk, okay? Teens talk this way. This is how the kids speak. She's saying she's scarfing up chow for the bohunk. Is, is, is the bohunk like a baby bird? Does she have to re regurgitate food for it? Oh, yeah, she's a mother bohunk. That's how bohunks work, don't you know? This has been a highly educational issue of New Mutants. Well, while attempting to scarf up said chow, in the kitchen, Boom Boom finds Feral, who's been scrounging for herself there. And Feral begs Boom Boom and Cable and Sam for protection. Uh, she's been watching from the air vents, and she's impressed. These guys fought together like a family. And she could use one of those, especially because she literally killed her entire original family, which doesn't come up here, but yeah, that's the thing she did. Oh, well, that's not great. Mostly, in fact, she killed um, them because they were messing with her pet pigeons. So basically, she's a really violent Bert from Sesame Street. So now we have two newcomers, or three if you count James Proudstar, and then we have some more who aren't quite as iconic or quite as heroic because some muscly purple dudes have teleported into the now-empty danger room looking for Shatterstar. These guys look like what you got when you set the hero machine on a random. God, they totally do, right? They have all these uh, helmets with some look like the Roman Centurion helmets, some have wings on the side, some of the characters themselves have wings. It's pretty bizarre. So I can actually no-prize this. These guys are from the Mojoverse, right? Right. Obviously, they outfitted themselves from the left from, like, the surplus costume bin. Oh, that makes sense. They just took random props that weren't being in use or hadn't been put away properly and just put them all on and spray-painted them purple. Right, and as we know, the Mojoverse entertainment is super violent, so these props are actual functional weapons, and they've got, you know, random ass armor, whatever they thought looked cool. Well, regardless, they go into the med lab, or whatever it is, and attack Shatterstar, Warpath, and Domino, the crew in the kitchen, Cable, Boom Boom, and Cannonball, hear and run in, and Feral joins them. Now, while that second group is on the way, some more purple dudes are sneaking up behind them, and this is confusing. Yeah, these guys, are they, are they supposed to be walking on air, or, or have they just decided when in Rome and started leaping everywhere, too? I'm going to assume the latter. The thing is, it looks really cool until you think about it at all, and then it looks really cool but also makes no sense, and I really feel pretty okay about that. I mean, I think that's an accurate description of a lot of action that Liefeld draws. Like, it's it's very much at-a-glance cool, and that's what it's shooting for. I mean, this is, these are books being drawn for kids who are reading them pretty fast, and they're there to be visceral and active and extremely dynamic, not necessarily to make sense. Exactly. Well, everyone's in the same room now, and there's a great big fight with some truly amazing dialogue from Farrell. 
I knew I smelled something funny. Now so will they. Their own blood! But it's not just her dialogue that's amazingly over-the-top badass. Her speech bubbles are neon pink. And the letters with holes in them, you know, like A and P and all that, the holes are filled with neon orange. Feral is like my wide-ruled notebook for middle school. I love those highlighter markers. Man, this entire comic should have been drawn on spiral-bound notebooks, like, bundled inside a Trapper Keeper. I feel like that's kind of its ideal form. I mean, some of those early designs, I would not be surprised. Now, Cannonball comments that Farrell reminds him of Wolverine or Sabretooth, so hey, that's a role that's now filled on this new version of the New Mutants. Everyone fights, everyone spits out sassy one-liners. And Shatterstar says, Zaz did, but this will be one for the prime time. I, I really do love all the TV references. They don't make any sense, but they're pretty great, and they do get the whole Mojoverse thing across really well. Now, a purple guy grabs Shatterstar from behind, and with an... I'm I'm not sure how that sound effect is supposed to be pronounced. Well, regardless, Shatterstar stabs his double-bladed sword back through his own body to impale the guy, who's suddenly twice as large and the sword is now six feet long. But still, I remember, I hated this turn of events in New Mutants. I hated that my favorite book was being changed so drastically, but even I could not deny that stabbing a sword through your own body to stab the dude who had you in a headlock, that is just fucking cool. Well, it's a good thing that, that the New Mutants have a lock on cool because they've got even more enemies coming in. Uh, Mask is here now with two big Morlocks, and they are after Feral. And uh, Mask? Does Mask normally have that many teeth? Dude, I counted. In the panel where Mask grins evilly, he has 44 teeth. Now, 32 is normal, so he must have 12 wisdom teeth. I'm thinking that's why he's always so mean. That's why he's in such a bad mood. He's got extra wisdom teeth, and that's got to really hurt. I had four, and that was plenty painful. Well, so there you have it. So Mask and his Morlocks show up and threaten the new mutants who have just finished defeating the purple dudes from the Mojoverse, and Cable just straight up shoots one of the Morlocks in the head, killing him. What the fuck? That's not how superheroes superhero. I mean, we've seen the X-Men be very dark. We've seen them end some life, but they always at least, you know, agonize over it. Here, Cable just shot a dude in, I'm not going to say cold blood because there was a threat, there was a conflict. Yeah, I think this is pretty clearly manslaughter. I mean, these guys did pre present an immediate and intense threat to his safety or the safety of those immediately around him. I don't know. I'm, I'm, look, I'm not a lawyer. Don't shoot Morlocks or not based on what I'm saying. I'm just a podcaster. Well, the remaining Morlocks, all two of them, Mask included, retreat, leaving the New Mutants alone in the carnage and wreckage of their base. Later, once they've all cleaned up a little bit, Cable introduces the new kids, Warpath, Shatterstar, and Feral, who have all agreed to join the New Mutants in exchange for help fighting their own respective bad guys. But the team can't stick around here. I mean, two sets of enemies have just found them. They know where they live. And Cable thinks they'd need to move on anyway. And quite frankly, I don't feel like our method of operating will coincide with those of our landlords, the X-Men and X-Factor. So, the next speech bubble is, is misplaced, but it's, I think, supposed to be Sam asking what comes next, to which Cable replies, You were first brought here by a man who had a dream, Sam. The dream is dead. It's time to face reality. You've already learned how to control your powers. Now it's time to start using them. It's time we become a force for change in this world. A force, legal or not, for what's right. You mean, say, an X-Force? In fact, and this is what leads us into X-Force number one, some denouement aside, and I gotta say, I may not like the team, I may not like X-Force's philosophy, 
but I think that they are, are an excellent counterpoint to X-Men and X-Factor and other books like that. I think that the X-Men line really benefits from having this preemptive strike, overly badass, murdery team. It's a nice contrast to the rest of them. Yeah, I talked last episode about the evolution of Cyclops' ideology, and one of the more interesting parts of that slow burn is actually seeing the ways Cable explicitly influences him. Totally. So that's that. There's now a mission statement. There's now almost a name for the team. And Cannonball and Boom Boom later on talk to each other about why they've each decided to stay, because they both consider leaving. Cannonball tells Boom Boom. It might sound corny to you, but I think we can honestly make a difference in this world. Do something to help people, mutants and humans, get by and live better lives. You probably think that's pretty stupid, huh? Well, really big time stupid, actually. But it's sweet, and so are you, Guthrie. You're a good egg. So tell me why you're sticking around. Well, what you said kind of works for me, too. Just don't tell anyone I said so. Boom Boom's growth from horribly immature Agent of Chaos to slightly more mature Agent of Chaos, it really works for me. I feel like it's earned. Yeah, she's a good kid. A good, violent kid. And so the team flies away in some confusing-looking technological something or other, and the last four panels that we see in Westchester for a while are zooming in more and more on the sign, Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters. And that is a good way to end the New Mutants tenure there. Now, Chris Claremont had the habit of ending issues, ending major turning points with the beginning. And Liefeld and Nicias are going one better, and they are ending this story with a prologue. Exactly. A prologue, very clearly, for X-Force, the series that will follow up the New Mutants. Uh, this prologue, that is an epilogue, that is also a prologue, takes us to the MLF, where Strife is heading up or possibly downstairs and is prompted for a password, which turns out to be... Survivor. So, you caught what that is, right? Exactly. That's the sixth group of mutants that Cable told Warpath he wanted to create. That's interesting. So there's, there's... Right, six types of mutants. That would be up, down, strange, charm, top, and bottom, right? I think those are technically quarks, but same difference. But that's an interesting one. The Strife goes into his headquarters and greets the rest of the mutant liberation front, including Rusty and Skids, who used to be with the new mutants. He talks of his next plan. He's going to send a team on a revenge strike against Genosha, the anti-mutant nation that did such horrible things to the various mutants during the extinction agenda. And then he takes off his helmet and before we've seen his face, says, The future looks very bleak indeed, doesn't it? But then again, who needs a crystal ball to predict the obvious? And who among you need us to tell you that the face under the helmet is, of course, Cable's. And that was the line that Cable said to Warpath. And, okay, this gets stupidly convoluted and complicated. More on that in a little bit. There's a song about it. There totally is. But I gotta say, what a fucking note to end this series on. I mean, that the big bad and the leader of the team are apparently the same dude. And that's referenced not only by the fact that they look the same, but by the fact that they're using some of the same dialogue. Like, I mean, that's just cool. As much as I hate the direction the New Mutants took, as much as 10-year-old me is still raging against the dying of the light, I love this part. Yeah, the use of the same lines really does it. But here's an interesting twist. Strife, as he'll be retconned later, is actually drawn wrong here because he's not supposed to have Cable's scars. It's true, but if we're going to worry about that kind of consistency, we'll be here all night. Well, but no, so I want to go back to that because there's a reason that he's drawn as identical to Cable here. Strife was originally actually supposed to be Cable. He was a Cable from further along in Cable's personal timeline, 
a cable who was far enough along in his, his personal timeline, far enough ahead of the main cable we've seen, that he had done a heel turn and become a villain and then come back in time to stop his good younger self. Um, which is ridiculous and also kind of awesome, although I gotta say, The Adventures of Superhero Girl did it way better. Yeah, that's some Kang the Conqueror shit. But that is New Mutants. Like, the whole series, it's over now. The next time we see these characters, aside from crossovers with other books, they're gonna be X-Force. I feel so empty inside. I know, but you know what? We got a lot of good New Mutants episodes out of uh, the run. It remains my favorite book. It has a special place in my heart, even if it ends on kind of a weird, pointed toe full of guns note. It's an interesting note, if nothing else. But meanwhile, you've got questions. Ingvar asks via email, I have a question about the X-Men film Logan. I'm assuming that this movie takes place in the old X-Men cinematic universe, rather than in the new one rebooted by Days of Future Past. If that is so, does Logan take place before or after Days of Future Past? It couldn't take place before because Wolverine dies in Logan. But if Logan takes place after Days of Future Past, then why isn't Earth a hellscape, and how did Wolverine survive the Sentinels? So my take on that is, just repeat to yourself, it's just a show. I should really just relax. Here's the thing. The timeline of the X-Men movies has gotten righteously screwed up. And the biggest screw-up that happened in Days of Future Past, like you mentioned, the very deliberate screw-up of the timeline, was done to undo X-Men 3, which I thought was a great plan. It's worth noting that in the comics, Old Man Logan, the storyline that Logan the movie is most directly based on, exists in its own timeline, its own continuity. It's, it's you know, a separate branch from everything else. And I think it's fair to assume that that's what's happening here. I absolutely think so, yeah, and we see that in some of the other spin-offs. I mean, Legion definitely doesn't seem to take place in the main X-Men universe, and by the look of it, X-Men The Gifted, the new TV show, doesn't either. For me, Logan is just one direction the timeline could have gone at some point. Maybe it was after Days of Future Past, once things got okay, that wouldn't make certain aspects of it make sense, but maybe the timeline branched again, who knows? For me, Logan, a movie that I love, works best if all you know is there were some X-Men, now there aren't, I'm not gonna worry about it. And that's often the case in comics as well. If you get too bogged down in the details of the continuity, as much as we obviously love doing that, and that's what the show is based on, then you can sometimes lose something. And for Logan, it's just doing its own thing. Michael R. Wentz asks on Tumblr, which X-Men do you think is most likely to watch Yuri on Ice, and who do you think they would try to introduce it to? <laughs> well, first of all, statistically, Trevor Hawkins, it's iBoy, would be the most likely X-Man to have seen Yuri on Ice. He is pretty much the X-Man most likely to have seen any given thing. And I think he would definitely recommend it to Bobby Drake, probably both of them. And it would probably be super awkward, at least with the older one. The younger one, presumably, has already watched all of it with Ida and Evan. You know, I haven't seen Yuri on Ice. You said it was awesome. You should see Yuri on Ice. It's amazing. It's, it's good and beautiful and life-changing and the last good thing in a fallen world. Oh. Well, shit, I should see that. Logan should see that, too, in his fallen world that may or may not exist in the same timeline as anything else. It's full of feelings and ice skating. Now, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with on-air acknowledgement from a variety of concepts and characters. So let's turn it over to the angry Claremontian narrator. Really? Incontinentia buttocks? Really? Could you not have graced this august gathering with some degree of dignity, or at least a less blatant Monty Python reference like maybe Michael Ellis? Or honestly, you might have eschewed such performance altogether and retained a bland but serviceable name such as Nigel Cox Hagen. But no, you had to be special. 
and just look at where it's gotten you. And I believe I'm, I'm turning it over here to uh, the heavily bladed strife. My ranks swell as those of the new mutants decrease, but the world of every mutant on each side, be they mollifier, abuser, used, hunted, hidden, or survivor, shall soon be rocked to its very core. Am I, like Kedge, a blade-bedecked megalomaniac with a fabulous cape? Or, like Bill Schmedlin, am I a gruff and gun-covered soldier and surrogate father figure? Or am I the latter, but a version from later in the timeline of the former? Or am I a backup clone made by a time-traveling cult leader? Or am I a woman under all that armor, which apparently would have been a big twist back in 1991? Regardless... Humanity shall tremble in confusion, and then shall the Mutants' Liberation Front strike! Man, I almost feel bad for the dude. Right, poor bladed guy. Right, so normally I would have said this in the intro and I completely forgot to, um, but I am going to be at FlameCon this coming weekend. I am not tabling, but I'm on panels on Saturday and Sunday both. One of them is about the X-Men, the other is about cosplay and consent. There's at least one other X-Men and costume design panel going on. I will be cosplaying, I'm not going to tell you what, but um, pretty recognizable. Probably. Man, I wish I could be there, but it's so far away. You're so far away. I know, man, I know. Maybe next time. Maybe you should. But with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kurt Lloyd, host of the fun and funny comic book cover story, which you can find on YouTube. New episodes of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out Explain the X-Men for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more, which we're going to be phasing gradually back in as we get used to the distance. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, X-Factor prepares to face down the Cyber Eye. And Beast gets it on with an alien made of crystals. Mm-hmm.